Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. The New Testament book of 2 Timothy and chapter number 1. The book of 2 Timothy and chapter number 1. We're continuing with this series of the Word of God and we're getting to the place at the end of this series where we're doing more application. Meaning, because we have learned things about the Word of God, how do we apply what we have learned? Now, we're in a segment this week speaking about the power of God's Word. And we took time this morning to understand that God's Word has great and tremendous power. Now, if that is true, if God's Word is powerful and God was able to use the exact words, then we can also have an application and apply the idea of using God's words for ourselves, using the actual words of God the way that God intended it to happen. So with this, we find a principle found in the book of 2 Timothy chapter number 1. The book of 2 Timothy chapter number 1, and if you don't mind, notice with me if you don't mind, starting at verse number 13. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Notice what the Bible says in verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And if in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1? 2 Timothy chapter 1, and notice with me if you don't mind, verse 13, the phrase, the form of sound words. The form of sound words. If you don't mind, I'm going to adjust the word form there to the idea pattern, which is what the uh, idea form there carries the idea, the pattern of sound words. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, I'm just asking that you would give us grace. Thank you so much that you've given us an example to follow in so many areas of life. And here you've given us an example to follow in the practice of our speech. Lord, I know that this is a message that requires discernment. It requires a spiritual maturity that some Christians, a lot of Christians, may not possess. They may not understand how important it is. But with us understanding, knowing the power that your words have and that you chose your words on purpose, we could do no better than to adjust our speech to match the pattern of sound words. I'm asking that you would just give me grace beyond myself, that you would give the physical health beyond what I currently have, that you would give me the understanding, the mindset that you desired me to have, that you would fill me with your spirit for the purpose of getting your work accomplished. Lord, I have no desire to burden unduly these good folks. I have no desire to waste their time. I have no desire to 
put up strife or conflict. We have every desire to see your name glorified, to see your word used the way that it should. I'm asking again that you would help us to learn something, to apply something, to have an understanding of your words and the power that it holds and how it can be used. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now again, we studied this morning the power of the words of God and that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We saw that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Truly, without a doubt, God's word is powerful. We had witnessed this morning that it said that God's word is like a fire and that it breaks in pieces like a hammer, the heart of stone. It says that God's word will not return void, but it will accomplish those things that God wanted to accomplish. And so as we now find the application of that here in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 13, we see where it says, hold fast the form of sound words. Sound words give health. In fact, that's what that word means. That word sound carries the idea of healthy these are healthy words. These are good words to use. In fact, if you're at the place where you don't know how to express things, you would be better off just expressing it using the very words that God gave to us. How did God's word um, express it? How did God place it? What phrase and terminology did God use to put it down? We cannot do any better than what God has done himself. And so we know that God's words are powerful. God's words are healthy. God's words are the ones that God intended to have. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to give several reasons why it's important to use the very language of scripture. Some reasons here why it is important to use the very language of Scripture. First of all, we understand the pattern of, we are to use the pattern of sound words to express clear doctrine. We use the pattern of sound words to express clear doctrine. Maybe we can give an example. The word Bible is not found in the Bible. That may be a surprise to you. That nowhere inside of the scriptures do you find the Bible. But you do see the, how God expresses it. How does God express the Bible? He calls it God's word. And when you think about it, which uh, phrase has more power, has more weight, has more authority? The Bible or God's word? Well, of course, God's word does, that it has the authority. And so whenever you can, as you adjust your terminology, it would be wise to call the Bible the way that God used it, expressing it as God's word, because it has God's authority. It has God's power with it to call it God's word. Well, as we're expressing clear doctrine, we know that sometimes people use poor phrases to kind of express what they mean. For example, there's a phraseology that's going around to express the, the doctrine of biblical assurance that says, once saved, always saved. Or some people may use the term eternal security. Do you know that either one of those phrases are not used in the Bible? 
The idea of once saved, always saved, some people carry an idea that that has something in mind that if I say a little prayer, if I do trusting in Jesus some way, that I get a fire insurance card and now I could do whatever I want and I'm still going to heaven. But that's not how the Bible expresses it. How does the Bible express what we have? The Bible expresses it this way, eternal life. In fact, look with me, if you don't mind, the book of 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. <laughs> Sorry, 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And notice with me in verse number 13. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. We're just showing to you how the Bible expresses this. 1 John 5.13 These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Here the way the Bible expresses that Bible doctrine is that we have eternal life life. Now, of course, as you study that phrase out and study what it means in the Bible with a brand new life, we get a brand new father. And with a brand new father, we also get someone who's going to take us outside of the woodshed. He's not going to allow us to continue in sin. As we have eternal life, there are many more things that accompany salvation. That the way that the Bible expresses it is going to be the best way that a cheaper version is not going to get across the same power, the same influence, and the same meaning. That God has granted to us eternal life. <laughs> we need to not use man's interpretation of God's word. We need to use the very words of scripture to express what God meant. And to express the very doctrine found in the word of God. We also use the pattern of sound words for the authority of God's word. We use the pattern of sound words for the authority of God's word. Now again, I'm just going to list several reasons. And I'm just going to more shotgun this and try to prove the point. <clears throat> but I want to try to hit something on each one to get across this idea of using God's word. Here we understand that the pattern of sound words we use for the authority of God's word. That man's words do not carry the same authority that God's does. God's word has great authority. Now people often need to take a strong stand and using God's word will help them to take a strong stand. My way of stating it does not have the same authority that God's word does. May I give an example? Sometimes people will say, well, I give you a godly challenge. Well, that sounds well and good. They may say, listen here, I challenge you to, you to read God's word. But you know how Bible states it? God commands you to read God's word. That has a different power to it. Has a different authority to it. You see, it's not a challenge where you could take it or leave it. God commands you to read God's word. God does command us. And his command carries with it the weight of absolute authority. God said it. Therefore, we should do it. There's not an option. There's not a take it or leave it. It's God's command. You see, that has a lot more power to it. When we see that God gives a command. Here's another one that's 
quite often in our world, the idea of burnout. We'll hear lots of things about burnout. I get things across my desk about burnout. It's a new, it's a buzzword that's been around for a while. It comes from more of the psychological world that you need to guard yourself from burnout. Keep yourself from being burnout. Well, how does the Bible express this phrase? It uses the word fainting. It uses the word fainting. Do you know that there is a cure for fainting? There is not a cure for burnt out. Notice if you don't mind as the psalmist David expresses this in Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Again, we understand what these folks are using with the word burnout. And there is something to be warned about. But the Bible uses the word fainting. Psalm 27 and verse 13. David is at his lowest point in his life. At this time in his life, he has been promised to be king, but it's nowhere in sight. He's being hunted by the king. He's a wanted man. And now he has lost everything. His men have followed him. And now their wives, their children, their livestock have all been taken at Ziklag. The enemy is there. And they, his, David's own men are actually talking about stoning him. That's a little bit different than burnout, isn't it? He's at the place where he's ready to faint. He's ready to quit. He's ready to give up. And notice what David says, Psalm 27 and verse 13. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David said, you know what? I would have quit. I would have been done. I, I, I couldn't handle it anymore. Except that I believed to see. He said, I didn't even see. I just had to believe to see the goodness of God. What is the cure of fainting? Putting your eyes on Jesus. Looking up to him, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what we look at. When we come to the idea of burnout, there is no cure. That's what they talk about. They're trying to prevent burnout. But once you get burnt out, there's nothing you can do. I'm thankful that there's a cure of fainting. I look at the Lord. Keep my eyes on him. We see that even biblical terminology gives more hope than what man's terminology will give. We need to build our vocabulary using Bible language. And we need to subtract man's vocabulary from our vocabulary. Here's something else. Use the pattern of sound words to keep with scriptural subjects. Use the pattern of sound words to keep with scriptural subjects. What do I mean by this? Well, you cannot preach a scriptural sermon if you have an unscriptural subject. Does that make sense? You can't preach a scriptural message about an unscriptural subject. So we need to even use the words of God to express the biblical subjects. Let me give an example. What do I mean by this? Sometimes people, and I have fallen into this from time to time, so I'll admit my thought. Sometimes we say, Christ is the answer. Christ is the answer to all. Christ is the answer. But do you know that idea is not found in the Bible? In fact, Christ is not the answer if you ask the wrong question. What do we say instead? What is the correct terminology? The correct terminology that Christ is all. Notice with me Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3.
the book of Colossians chapter number 3. Again, learning to express things the way that God expressed it. Sometimes again, people use the popular terminology, Christ is the answer. But he's not the answer to every question. You may ask the wrong question. What do we look for instead? Verse number 11, Colossians 3.11. Where there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcision or non-circumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Here we have the idea that Christ is what people need no matter who you are. Whether bond or free. Whether barbarian or Greek. Whether Jew or Greek. Circumcision, uncircumstantial. What does everyone need? They need Christ. Christ is all and in all. Everyone needs Christ. You know, one of the things that we find is that people are not hungry for Christ the right way. If Christ is just an answer, he's not all. Does that make sense? If Christ is just an answer, well, some people aren't looking for the answer. But Christ is all. Everything about our life should be Christ. And we need Christ for every part of our life. Every truth of God supports every other truth. So if we turn away from one truth of God, you turn away from every truth of God. They're all related. What am I speaking about? Christ is all. You can't ignore part of Christ without ignoring all of Christ. You have to have him all. So with that, we make the application of don't use catchy titles. We should use biblical titles to point people to the Bible. Something else that we kind of notice here is that we should preach things that we've already got a blessing from using the very words of scripture. For example, here's something that happens often. People will preach a message about how to be happy. Well, that sounds good and people want to hear that. But the message should be how to know God. Remember our theme for last year? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Where does our joy come from? From knowing who God is. Joy is not the goal. God is the goal. The joy is a byproduct of that goal. So we shouldn't preach messages about the goal or the byproduct. We should preach messages about the goal. The goal is knowing Christ and knowing who he is. The Bible doesn't teach us how to be happy. It teaches us how to be obedient. And as we follow after God, that God makes us happy. He gives us joy. The Bible doesn't teach us how to be successful. I've heard people say, let me show you how to be successful in the Bible. It doesn't show us how to be successful. Let's see the verse that they use. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. As I said at the beginning, this message does take some spiritual maturity. Many people who would listen to this who don't have spiritual maturity said, what in the world is going on here? But those with spiritual maturity could start to see and have an understanding. God's word does have power. And you can see the differences between the things that we say. Notice in Joshua chapter 1. In Joshua chapter 1, the Bible does not teach us how to have good success. Notice what it says in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. 
This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that they, thou mayest observe to do according that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Some people may run to this end part and say, look, we can have good success. How do we have good, good success? But this verse isn't teaching about having good success. It's teaching you to observe to do. And as you observe to do, then you'll be successful. Success is a byproduct. The goal is obedience to the Lord. Does that make sense? There's spiritual discernment that we have to understand here. This idea that success is a byproduct. Notice with me, if you don't mind, my life verse, Romans 12, 2. Romans 12, 2. In Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2, it says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is the emphasis of this passage? It's to have the will of God. That the will of God is better than success. Having the will of God is where God is glorified in his life as we have followed after him. It should be the goal. Finding God's will for our life. What else do we learn here? Well, we also use the pattern of sound words for the power found in God's words. We use the pattern of God, uh, sound words for the power found in God's word. We know that there's no convicting power inside of man's words. Don't try to convict people of their sins. That's God's job and the job of his word. By the way, we can't convict people ourselves, but God's word can do a work. May I give an example? Now again, spiritual discernment. Some people will say, well, he's suffering from alcoholism. We know that that's not a biblical word. What is the biblical word? He's a drunkard. Now, what does all this kind of carry the idea of? Well, we know that AA, as much as they try to do good, is a cheap substitute for Christ. Because AA talks about having the higher power. But you can't have the full gospel without Christ in it for itself. It has to be all about Christ or it doesn't work. Now, when we talk about alcoholism, alcoholism carries the idea and what is taught is that it's a disease. Alcoholism is a disease. But if it's a disease, there is no promise to overcome it. But if, if alcohol is a sin, then guess what? We have freedom from sin because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Alcoholism, when it's taught is a disease, says you are always going to suffer from that disease forever and ever. You could be 15 years sober and you still have this disease. But the good thing is that we could have liberty in Christ and he could give victory where you have no desire for alcohol again. That should be the freedom that people desire and that comes from knowing God. But the biblical language is that it's a drunkard carrying the idea that there is an idea of sin behind it, not a disease. We know that God's word has much more power. How about this one? 
a cute little phrase. Well, he's just telling stories. No, the Bible says telling lies. Telling lies. Do you know a lie is never justifiable? The idea of a lie contradicts the character of God. The Bible says that God cannot lie. And so for us to tell lies is going against the very character of God. By the way, telling lies is a much more powerful way than saying telling stories. Telling stories gives the idea that you're brushing it off and that it's no big deal. But telling lies, whoa, 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 I'm not telling a lie. That has a lot of power behind it. There's a convicting power. Well, as we continue to go on, think about this. Here's one that, that hits uh, all the time. This idea of balance. I hear preachers use it all the time. And uh, they justify it. But they say the word balance, balance. You got to have a balanced life. You got to have a balanced ministry. You got to have a balanced thing. I had one telephone call a couple years ago with a preacher. That in one telephone conversation, he used the word balance 14 times. Now, Again, it got something in the crawl. It becomes a common vernacular. Now, the defense for this is they say, wait a second, the word balance is found in the Bible. Spiritual maturity, understand, spiritual maturity. They say balance is found in the Bible. Well, praise the Lord. Would you like to see where the word balance is found? The book of Proverbs chapter 11. There's two times that it's used. Proverbs 11 verse 1. And let's look at them really quick because we don't want to... We want to teach things correctly, not through our opinions. So how does God use the word balance? The Proverbs 11 verse 1. Proverbs 11 verse 1. I know I'm isolating and um, some of my friends now, my good friends. But I'm not worried about them. I want to see what the Bible has to say. Book of Proverbs 11 verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Now... They pause and use just that. Look, it says balance. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. I understand that. Notice what it says. But a just weight is his delight. Now, what is it speaking about? Well, in the ancient world, what would happen is that if you were going to buy a certain amount of grain, you would put it on a weight scale, and then you would have to measure out how much money, money was actually made in weights back then, you would have a certain amount of gold according to the weight. And what would happen is that they would, in order for thievery, adjust the scales so that way you paid more for less wheat. Does that make sense? And a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. It's talking about thievery, taking one side and putting on the other unjustly. Notice the other use of the word balance, Proverbs 20. Spiritual discernment. I know this goes over like a lead balloon with a lot of preacher friends that I may have, but that's how it goes. Proverbs 11 verse uh, Proverbs 20 rather, Proverbs 20 and verse number 23. It said diverse weights are abomination to the Lord. Remember what I just said the context was? Putting this diverse weight, putting different weights than what the actual thing is, are abomination to the Lord and a false balance is not good. Now, when people use the word balance, this is what they mean by, you look up here, what do they mean by balance? Well, they say we have to have a balanced ministry. And so what they mean by that is that I have to take something from the ministry and I have to put it on the side of my family so they balance out. 
I have to take something from my personal life and I have to give it to God so it balances it out. Well, you know, that's horrible. That the idea that I should take something from my family and put them in ministry or that I should take something from my, the ministry and put it to my family. What is the solution? What is the word that we're supposed to use? The, God desires us to be complete in Christ. To have everything that God desires me to have in the way that he wants me to have it. I should be complete in Christ. Well, you say, do you have Bible verse behind it? I do, I do. Colossians chapter 2. We'll look at two references. Now again, I'm trying to build a case, not for specific words, but in our vocabulary as a general, that we should use the very words of Scripture as much as possible because of the power of God's Word. That if I'm speaking to someone and I'm trying to counsel a young man who's trying to find his way in the ministry, the idea of telling him to have a balanced ministry is going to mess him up. It carries the idea that I have to sacrifice something in my life in order to have something else. Notice what the Bible says, Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 10. Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 10. And ye are complete in him, who's the him? Christ. Ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Notice the same phrase is now used in chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 12. As the Apostle Paul is closing out this letter to the church of Colossae. Notice what he says that his desire is. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. How is Epaphras praying for the people? That ye may stand perfect and complete in all of the will of God. You know what God desires? He desires us to be complete. What do I mean by that? God wants me to be everything I ought to be in my home. And he wants me to be everything I ought to be in the ministry. And he wants me to be everything I ought to be at work. And he wants me to be everything I ought to be in this place. He wants me to be complete in Christ. Everything he desires me to be in each area of my life. Does that make sense? Not to take something from one side and steal it, snatch it away so I could put it in the other. That is awful. By the way, my wife would absolutely hate it if I had to steal from her in order to give to the Lord. She's selfish, selfish enough to say, I want all that my God desires my husband to be to me. Does that make sense? Here's another one that's in the vocabulary of many Christians. The, the phrase, if the Lord tarries. I hear this a lot. If the Lord tarries. They sound super religious, doesn't it? If God tarries. If the Lord tarries. But you know what we should use instead? If the Lord wills. We should do what God wants us to do. You know, God may tarry, but it still may not be God's will. May I show you something? Notice with me the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4. And notice with me in verse 19. 
Notice the Apostle Paul is talking to the church of Corinth. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will. He didn't say if the Lord tarries, I'm going to come to you. He said, I'm coming if that's what God wants me to do. That's what he wanted most of all. He wasn't saying, well, if God doesn't come back, then I'll do this. No, I'm going to do this if that's what God wants me to do. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up of the power. He didn't say if the Lord tarries. He says if God wills. Notice with me if you don't mind in the book of James. And for some reason, people think that the book of James is where you get the idea that the Lord tarries. So let's see what the Bible actually says. The book of James chapter number 4. The book of James chapter 4. And notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 15. James chapter 4 and verse 15. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. What should be the end all be all? That God wills. This is what God has given us to do. Let's give an example of this. Peter could not say if the Lord tarries. Now the Lord tarries is a religious term that carries the idea that if God doesn't come back. So if God holds back his coming. Peter could not say this because God told Peter you're going to die. So he wasn't waiting for God to come back. He was waiting for the time he was going to die. Does that make sense? There was no waiting on God. So what he had to do? He had to Wait, do God's will, if the Lord wills, if this is what God has given me to do. Does that make sense? You have no guarantee that God is going to come back within your lifetime, but you have everything to do to find God's will for your life. That is a better way of stating it. If the Lord wills. How many more people would come back to church if they said, well, if God wills me to come to church, well, if the Lord tarries, I'll get there. Okay, cool. But if the Lord wills, that's something different. I'm doing it because this is what God has given me to do. If the Lord wills. Then we also carry the idea. Um, <clears throat> turn with me since we're close by. Revelation chapter 14. Now I told you this was a spiritually mature message. This is something that requires it. But hopefully you're starting to get some understanding here. That using the very words of scripture is much more important, much more complete. A better way of expressing things than our own ideas or the normal phraseology. In Roman, uh, Revelation 4.13, I want to show you something here. This is great. Revelation 4.13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Lord, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Now this is encouraging. But notice this. These people were doing more than dying for the Lord. Notice again the very words. They weren't dying for the Lord. Notice again verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me. Write blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. When you're dying in the Lord. You're dying serving God the way that God has given to you. That's something different altogether than someone who's saying, well, I'm a Christian. I'm going to go ahead and die because I'm a Christian. No, these people died in the way that God, it was pleasing to God in the manner of their death. They weren't spitting and chewing and railing and yelling at people. 
They were asking God to still save those people. They died in the Lord, meaning in the Lord's will, the manner that God has given to them. And again, we're trying to see the very usage of language. By the way, you are always on sure ground when you stand on biblical language. Something else that we see is that we use the pattern of sound words at the pattern of sound words as safeguards against dangerous ideas. We use the pattern of sound words from God's word as a safeguard against dangerous ideas. Now, this is important. False cults around the world use non-biblical phraseology and terminology that people don't notice. They purposely use religious sounding phrases and because it sounds religious, People are sucked into them. It sucks into their idea. Here's an example. And again, hate mail, come on. There is a man by the name of C.S. Uh, Lewis who writes a book on cases for humanity. But do you know all throughout that book of case of, uh, for, uh, case for Christianity, he never once quoted scripture? It was just a philosophy book trying to prove through philosophy that Christ exists. And yet people use it all the time instead of using the scripture. Do you know, according to C.S. Lewis's own testimony, that if he believed what he said he believed, he was not saved. So do we trust building up our foundation of philosophy for Christian living by someone who wasn't a Christian himself? By his own writings. You see that's dangerous. And this is what people use all the time. Is that they will use religious sounding words. They will use fancy words and phraseologies that sound important. And they will suck them in. And the reason why they could suck them in is because people don't know their Bible. When we stand on the very words of scripture, we become safe and protected from the false philosophies and the false cults of the world. Here's another thing. We know that false um, dangerous ideas even flow through non-religious things. For example, the idea of low self-esteem. Well, I just have a low self-esteem. Oh, you need to work on your self-esteem. You need to work on that. You know what the Bible says instead? It says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews chapter 12. And let's see what we should be doing instead. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Now, if you haven't figured out, the idea of low self-esteem means that you're looking at yourself. What should we be looking at? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When you are looking up at Jesus, you're looking away from something else. We shouldn't be looking at ourselves. We should be looking unto Christ. That's our hope. That's what we're looking at. By the way, if you look at yourself too long, you will get disappointed. You will get discouraged. You will get depressed. Because as great as you may think you are, you may find that you fall short in a lot of areas. But Christ never fails. When you look at him, you're no longer looking at yourself. And you see him, you have hope. You have faith. That is the Christ that we're looking at. Let's carry another terminology, another one that's going around in Christian circles. We need to share Christ. We need to share Christ with others. You know what the Bible has to say about that? We preach Christ. We 
preach Christ. The word preach means to proclaim. You go all the way through 1 Corinthians and examine it. We are to preach Christ. You say, I'm not a preacher. You are ordered to preach. You're ordered to proclaim the gospel. Preach Christ. To declare Christ to someone else. The idea of sharing doesn't carry the same thing as... um, a preaching. Sharing carries the idea, let's get some donuts in together and we'll exchange ideas. No, we're declaring unto them Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's the answer and He's what they need. We are to preach Christ. There goes my hate mail. All right. What else do we see here? The use of the pattern of sound words also helps us to keep the pure goals of God's Word. The pure goals of God's Word. What is the ultimate goal of God's word? That I may know him. That I may know him. Philippians 3.10 That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The only goal is knowing him. And if we know him, we will make him known. It's knowing Him. Every thing about ourself. Knowing ourself is a byproduct of knowing Him. It's knowing Him first and then we can understand each other. Every course and everything we learn should all be used to help us to know Him more. Socrates was a Greek philosopher and he had a famous phrase that's still repeated today and it was to know thyself. That's what he said. He said, know thyself. Now, may we think logically here? Did Socrates know himself? He could not. He lacked a true conviction of sin. It was lacking in his life. Why did he lack that? Because he didn't see Jesus. When you know God, you see yourself as you truly are. That I'm a sinner in need of a savior. A person looking to Jesus is then ready to examine himself. The only way that you could truly see yourself as you truly are is when you're looking at Jesus and he shows us who we truly are. Now all of this is made just as a shotgun method, just as an idea of trying to practically apply what we learn today. If we believe that God's word has power, then as an application we should use the very words of scripture to tell people what we believe, what we see about ourselves. We should use the very terminology of scripture. One of the things that's happened is that we've become biblically illiterate, meaning that we don't know things from the Bible. We no longer have a biblical heritage. Interesting enough, in the World War II and the Battle of Durkunk, what had happened is that the British and French expeditionary forces were were hemmed up in a small little port town in France called Durkunk. That the German um, movements had moved all across Europe, swept across it in their blitzkrieg, and had just pinned all of the forces. And now as the German army has surrounded them, that Hermann Goring, the Air Force commander of the German Air Forces, had asked that he could go ahead and destroy the rest of the forces with his Air Force. 
But it just so happened that a huge fog storm rolled in and there was no way that his planes could go ahead and bomb the forces. And so with the tanks on standby told to wait so that way the Air Force can go, the British Expeditionary Forces got a three-word message to Great Britain. And it was, but if not. That's it. But if not, what in the world does that mean? But because the British people were biblically literate, they understood that came from the story found in the book of Daniel. Inside of the book of Daniel, you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were ordered by the king to bow down and worship the image that he had. And the three Hebrew young men refused to bow, and they said, Oh king, we are not careful to answer you in this. And he said, Our God is able to deliver us. But if not, we still will not bow. And so the British high command understood that phrase. That they are surrounded. It is hopeless. But they will not surrender. And so one of the most amazing feats in military history occurred. That the British Isles got every floating ship they possibly could. Every military vessel. Every fishing trawler. Every uh, cargo ship. Everything they possibly could. And over the, co- uh, the cover of fog in the storm, in the darkness, they sent us those ships across the, um, the, the British Canal, the English Canal, and they rescued almost every single one of those soldiers in the cover of the storm because of a three-word message that all of the biblically literate people in Great Britain would understand. But if not. What are we talking about here? Because we've gotten so far away from using the actual language of Bible, we've actually lost so much power and understanding from God's word. If we believe that God has given us his word and that it is without error, meaning that it says nothing but truth, and we believe that this word has great power, then we should also make the application of using the very words of Scripture for ourselves. There is no better way of expressing Bible doctrine than using God's very words. And so with that, I want to encourage you to become a biblically literate person and begin to adjust your own vocabulary to use the very words of Scripture and you'll be surprised to see the power that God has when we use His very words. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness 
of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.